The following is read by Jeff Epstein. Citizens Media TV on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and People Conversations on SoundCloud. A reading of the paper, Can Taxes and Bonds Finance Government Spending? By Stephanie Bell, now Kelton, a Cambridge University visiting scholar at the Jerome Levy Economics Institute. This is working paper number 244, written in July 1998. The author wishes to thank Peter Ho, John Henry, Edward Nell, and Randy Ray for helpful comments. Remaining errors are mine. Abstract. This paper investigates the commonly held belief that government spending is normally financed through a combination of taxes and bond sales. The argument is a technical one and requires a detailed analysis of reserve accounting at the central bank. After carefully considering the complexities of reserve accounting, it is argued that the proceeds from taxation and bond sales are technically incapable of financing government spending and that modern governments actually finance all of their spending through the direct creation of high-powered money. The analysis carries significant implications for fiscal as well as monetary policy. Section 1. Introduction. The optimal method by which to finance government deficit spending remains a controversial topic among many economists. Although most would agree that government financial policies require choosing among the imposition of taxes, the sale of interest-bearing debt obligations, and the printing or creation of government money, or some combination of these, there is often strong disagreement regarding the macroeconomic consequences of these choices. Debt obligations include government bonds, treasuries, and etc. And the term printing is always set in quotes in this paper. Note. 1. Government money will be used to refer to high-powered money, HPM, defined as member bank deposit balances at the Federal Reserve, plus total currency outstanding. When necessary changes in the money supply, M1, M2, etc., will be distinguished from changes in HPM, or high-powered money. Continuing. The Barrow-Ricardo thesis from 1974, for example, suggests that the financing choice is inconsequential. This, it is argued, is because the knowledge that bond-financed government spending will require higher taxes in the future induces households to save more now. The induced saving, which is just sufficient to purchase the new government debt, leaves private net wealth unchanged, thereby completely neutralizing the stimulative effect of government spending. Similarly, as Tobin recognizes, spending financed by issuing demand obligations, such as by printing money, might lead a monetarist Ricardian to suggest a, quote, money rain, like a, quote, bond rain, will have no effect on aggregate private wealth or consumption since adjustments in the price level will prevent the real quantity of money from changing. Thus, bond or money financed deficit spending yields results, quote, equivalent with those that would have resulted if all spending had been financed by contemporaneous taxation, meaning taxation occurring around the same time. In contrast, some Keynesians maintain that choices concerning the source or sources of deficit finance are indeed relevant. For them, 
the economic consequences of borrowing and printing money can differ substantially from those obtained when government spending is financed solely by contemporaneous taxation. Among members of this group, meaning Keynesians, most would probably agree that printing money is both the least common and the least desirable method for financing the government's spending. Indeed, most would probably say that bond sales are, and should be, used to finance the excess of spending over taxation. Despite differing beliefs regarding the consequences of the financing decision, both groups clearly believe that the government does choose how to finance its spending. What is conspicuously absent in these ongoing debates, however, is a detailed examination of the nuances of reserve accounting. Because these nuances have not been incorporated into standard analyses, many economists continue to debate the macroeconomic consequences of alternative, quote, financing methods. These debates follow directly from the apparent interdependence among taxes, bond sales, and deficit spending. By considering the impact of these operations on bank reserves, their interdependence can be explained as a consequence of their, quote, reserve effects, rather than as necessary financing relationships. Note that the term reserve effects is set in double quotes throughout this paper. Thus, this paper closely examines the reserve effects of the Treasury's operations by tracing through the impact of government spending, taxing, and bond sales on aggregate member bank reserves. Section 2 details the impact of government spending and taxing on bank reserves, as well as the significance of the resulting reserve effects. In Section 3, some important strategies for minimizing the reserve effects are introduced. The case of deficit spending is taken up in Section 4, where the reserve effects of various methods for the sale of government debt are examined. In Section 5, the complexities of reserve accounting are carefully considered, and newly created money is revealed as the source of all government finance. It is further argued that the proceeds from taxation and bond sales are not even capable of financing government spending, since their collection implies their destruction. In the concluding section, it is suggested that debates concerning alternative methods for financing government's deficit spending should instead debates about alternative means of draining excess reserves from the banking system. Section 2, page 3, the reserve effects of taxing and spending. Before examining the reserve effects of various treasury operations, it is perhaps prudent to begin by looking closely at aggregate member bank reserves. Beginning with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, equivalent terms can be added to each side, and the entries can be manipulated algebraically in order to isolate member bank reserves. The result, often referred to as the reserve equation, depicts total member bank reserves as the difference between the alternative sources and uses of reserve funds. Note 2. Although reserve requirements are generally met by holding a combination of vault cash and checking accounts at district federal reserve banks, accounts held by depository institutions at federal home loan banks, the National Credit Union Administration Central Liquidity Facility, or correspondent banks may also count towards satisfying the reserve requirement. Depository institutions do not have to meet these reserve requirements on a daily basis. They have a two-week reserve period ending on Wednesdays within which they must maintain average daily total reserves 
equal to the required percentage of average daily transactions accounts held during the two-week period ending the preceding Monday. Thus, despite being referred to as a contemporaneous reserve accounting CRA, system, it is, in practice, lagged for two days. That is, banks always have two days, Tuesday and Wednesday, within which to acquire ex-post reserves needed to eliminate a known deficiency. While some banks may choose to hold excess reserves, profit-maximizing banks will economize on reserves. Unless a bank has a preference for idle funds, it will exchange excess reserves for earning assets, such as loans or securities. Continuing, the reserve equation can be written as Figure 1. Total member bank reserves equals sources minus uses. Under sources is listed Federal Reserve Credit, U.S. Government Securities, Loans to Member Banks Float, plus Gold, plus SDR Certificates, plus Treasury Currency. Under Uses is Currency in Circulation, plus U.S. Treasury Balance at the Fed, plus Foreign Balances at the Fed, plus Treasury Cash, plus other Fed Deposits and Accounts. Net. End Figure 1. From Figure 1, it is clear that an increase in any of the bracketed terms on the left will increase reserves, while an increase in any of the bracketed terms on the right will reduce them. Section 2.1 Reserve Effects of Taxing and Spending In this section, the reserve effects of two important Treasury operations, government spending and taxing, will be analyzed. To emphasize the impact of these operations on bank reserves, the case in which all government payments and receipts are immediately credited or debited to accounts held at reserve banks will be considered. Note 4. It is of course true that the Treasury keeps accounts at thousands of commercial banks and other depository institutions as well as Federal Reserve Banks. This changes things considerably and will be taken up in the next section. Continuing, when the government spends, it writes a check on its account at the Federal Reserve. Assuming the check is deposited into an account at a commercial bank, member bank reserves rise by the amount of the check as the Federal Reserve debits the Treasury's account, decreasing the right-hand bracket, RHB, in Figure 1, and credits the account of a commercial bank. Thus, a system-wide increase in member bank reserves results whenever a check is drawn on a treasury account at a Federal Reserve Bank is deposited with a commercial bank. Government spending, then, increases aggregate bank reserves, ceteris paribus, meaning all other things being equal. When instead of drawing on its account at the Fed, the treasury receives funds into this account, the reverse is true. For example, if a taxpayer pays his taxes by sending a check to the IRS, his bank and the banking system as a whole lose an equivalent amount of reserves as the IRS deposits the check into the Treasury's account at the Federal Reserve. Total member bank reserves decline as the RHB, or right-hand bracket, in Figure 1 increases. Thus, the payment of taxes by check results in a system-wide decrease in member bank reserves. Ceteris Paribus, all other things being equal. Note 5. 
it is worth noting that government spending must originally have preceded taxation. That is, the payment of taxes could not increase the Treasury's account at the Fed, RHB term, reducing bank reserves until the reserves had been created. Moreover, the Federal Reserve and or Treasury, as the only agents capable of supplying them, must have been the original source of these reserves. This will be taken up in Section 5. Continuing, if Treasury spending out of its accounts at Federal Reserve Banks were perfectly coordinated with tax receipts deposited directly into the Treasury's accounts at Reserve Banks, their opposing effects on reserves would offset one another. That is, if the government ran a balanced budget with daily tax receipts and government spending timed to offset one another, there would be no net effect on bank reserves. However, as Figure 2 shows, the Treasury's daily receipts and disbursements from accounts at reserve banks are highly incommensurate, meaning they do not match. Indeed, they can differ by almost $6 billion. Figure 2, titled Daily Flows Into and From Federal Reserve Accounts, March 1998. Net transfers to or from TNL accounts and debt management. TNL is tax and loan. This is a graph that shows daily federal income and expenditures to be substantially and consistently different, where expenditures are generally greater. End figure. Thus, despite an attenuation or lessening of the severity of the reserve effect due to the simultaneous injection and withdrawal of reserves, government spending and taxation will never perfectly offset one another. Even if a more even pattern could be established, some discrepancies would persist because, as Irving Auerbach recognized, quote, there is no way to determine in advance with complete accuracy the total amount of the receipts or the speed at which revenue collectors will be able to process the returns. Close quote. Thus, while concurrent government spending and taxation have some offsetting impact on reserves, the reserve effect from Treasury's daily cash operations would still be substantial, especially, quote, if they were channeled immediately through the Treasurer's balance at the reserve banks. Auerbach, 1963. Section 2.2, page 6, The Importance of the Reserve Effect. The inability to perfectly coordinate Treasury receipts and expenditures has serious implications for the level of bank reserves and, subsequently, the money market. Because banks are required by law to hold reserves against some fraction of their deposits but earn no interest on reserves held in excess of this amount, they will normally prefer not to hold substantial excess reserves. Government spending, then, will leave them with more reserves than they prefer or need to hold, while the clearing of tax payments will leave them with fewer reserves than are desired or required, ceteris paribus. The Fed funds market is the, quote, market of first resort. For banks wishing to rid themselves of excess reserves or to acquire reserves needed to meet deficiencies. When there is a buildup of reserves within the system, many banks will attempt to lend reserves in the federal funds market. The problem, of course, is that lending reserves in the funds market cannot help a banking system, which began with an equilibrium level of reserves, 
to rid itself of excess reserves. Moreover, when the system is flush with excess reserves, banks will find that there are no bidders for these funds and the federal funds rate may fall to a 0% bid. Likewise, the clearing of tax payments will leave a banking system which began with an equilibrium level of reserves short of required and or desired reserves. Banks will look to the funds market to acquire needed reserves, but since all banks cannot return to an equilibrium reserve position by borrowing federal funds, a system-wide shortage will persist. That is, like a system-wide surplus, a system-wide deficiency cannot be alleviated through the funds market. An attempt to do so will simply drive the funds rate higher and higher. Note 6. When there is a reserve deficiency for the banking system as a whole, banks could attempt to resolve the deficiency by reducing deposits. If a single bank begins this process, selling U.S. securities to a member of the non-bank public or allowing loans to be repaid without reissuing them, it will result in a multiple contraction of deposits, assuming all banks follow suit. Though this would ultimately eliminate the banking system's reserve deficiency without requiring banks to acquire additional reserves, the process takes time and it will disrupt interest rates until equilibrium is restored. Deficiencies will therefore usually be eliminated as the banking system acquires more reserves, not as it reduces deposits that reserves are required to back up. Continuing, importantly, the funds rate is not the only interest rate affected by changes in the level of bank reserves. As the, quote, focus of monetary policy, the funds rate is the, quote, anchor for all other interest rates, pool 1987. Thus, when banks are content with their reserve positions, treasury operations, such as government spending and taxation, disrupt these positions by adding or draining reserves and banks react to these changes by first turning to the funds market. There, the funds rate is bid up or down and other short-term interest rates are affected. Although some individual banks will be successful in eliminating their own reserve deficiencies or excesses, the banking system as a whole will not be able to alleviate a shortage or deficiency on its own. Only through government adding or draining of reserves can a system-wide imbalance be eliminated. Because attempts to resolve system-wide reserve disequilibrium through the funds market can affect a number of other interest rates, a variety of procedures have been developed to mitigate the adverse impact of Treasury operations on banks' reserve positions. Page 8, Section 3, Strategies for Reducing the Reserve Effect. In the preceding discussion, the effects of government spending and taxing on bank reserves were examined by assuming that all disbursements and receipts were immediately credited or debited to the Treasury's accounts at Federal Reserve Banks. This treatment allowed us to highlight the impact of each of these operations on the level of bank reserves, but it did not paint a realistic picture of the way things currently work. If things did indeed work this way, there would be an unrelenting disruption of banks' reserve positions and, subsequently, chronic turmoil in the funds market. Because these consequences are highly undesirable from a policy perspective, some important strategies have been developed to mitigate these persistent yet unpredictable reserve effects. Let us move to an examination of these techniques. 
page 9, section 3.1, the use of tax and loan accounts. The disruptive nature of the Treasury's operations was recognized under the independent Treasury system and ultimately led to the use of general and special depositories, private banks in which government funds could be kept. This was the first important strategy developed to mitigate the reserve effect. Note 7. The independent treasury system was in effect long before the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. It was established in 1840, abolished the following year, re-established in 1846, and discontinued in 1921. Note 8. General depositories have become known as remittance option banks while special depositories are currently referred to as note option banks. Both are depository institutions with TNL or tax and loan accounts, but a remittance option bank, like its predecessor, the general depository, must remit its TNL balances to a reserve bank the day after the funds are received. In 1978, Note option banks were given the opportunity to accumulate the daily tax payments they receive by transferring them from the ordinary TNL accounts, where they are held interest-free for one day, into an interest-bearing note account. Up to a pre-approved limit, these funds can remain in note accounts until the Treasury calls them to be transferred to reserve banks. Continuing, as Ramlett recognized, the reserve effect caused by the, quote, point inflow continuous outflow nature of Treasury activities, close quote, could be tempered by placing certain government receipts into tax and loan TNL accounts at private depositories. Thus, the reserve drain that would otherwise accompany payments made to the government could be temporarily prevented. The benefits of using these depositories were quickly recognized, and their functions were broadened whenever it became clear that they could be used to further mitigate the reserve effect. Note 9. In this case, a distinction between the supply of money and HPM, or high-powered money, should be made. When tax receipts are placed into a TNL account, HPM, bank reserves and currency outstanding, is not affected. The money supply, M1, however, is. When funds are transferred from demand deposits where they are part of M1 into TNL accounts or the Treasury's account at the Fed, the money supply declines. Note that TNL accounts are not part of any standard measure of the money supply, M1, M2, etc. Continuing, as the size of the government's fiscal operations grew, special depositories quickly became the most important group of bank depositories. As Figure 3 shows, just over two-thirds of all federal tax receipts are currently deposited directly into TNL accounts. Figure 3, titled Disposition of Federal Tax Deposits, November 1997 through March 1998. This is a chart showing how 67% of all federal tax deposits are held in TNL accounts, 18% are held in remittance option depositories, 13% directly in Federal Reserve accounts, and 2% in other. End figure. Today the TNL accounts are by far the most important device used to guard the money market against the sizable daily differences shown in figure 2 between the flows of government receipts and disbursements. 
Page 10, Section 3.2, Managing the Treasury's Balance at the Fed. Since almost all government spending involves writing checks on accounts at the Fed, virtually all funds in TNL accounts must eventually be transferred to reserve banks. Note 10. This is not because the government needs the proceeds from taxation in order to spend again, but because it chooses to coordinate its taxing and spending. This will be taken up in the final section. Continuing. Because only net changes in the Treasury's account at the Fed impact the aggregate level of reserves, ceteris paribus, maintaining, quote, the Treasurer's balance with the reserve banks at a reasonably constant level, close quote, is the second strategy used to minimize the reserve effect of the Treasury's operations. Specifically, the Treasury, quote, aims to maintain a closing balance of $5 billion in its Federal Reserve checking accounts each day, close quote. Many Penny, et al., 1992. Figure 4 shows how successful the Treasury is in its endeavor to maintain its target closing balance. Figure 4, title, Daily Closing Balance in Treasury's Account at the Federal Reserve, November 1997 through March 1998. A line graph showing the daily Treasury account balance hovering very close to $5 billion over a five-month period. End figure. Recall that the government receives funds into its accounts at the 12 reserve banks as well as thousands of commercial banks each day, but that nearly all government spending is done by writing checks on accounts at reserve banks. Maintaining a closing balance of $5 billion at reserve banks, then, usually requires transferring the appropriate amount from TNL accounts to the Treasury's account at the Fed. For example, if the Treasury expected to receive $5 billion directly into accounts at reserve banks today and expected $6 billion in previously issued checks to be presented for payment today, $1 billion will need to be transferred to the Treasury's account at the Fed today so that there will be no net change in the level of reserves. The Treasury transfers funds to cover anticipated shortfalls by making a, quote, call on TNL accounts. In most cases, advance notice is given before transferring funds from these accounts. Note 11. Special depositories or note option banks fall into three categories. A banks, B banks, and C banks. A and B banks are typically smaller institutions, while depositories that are classified as C banks are generally large banks. TNL calls are calculated as fractions of the book balance in each TNL account on the previous day. Calls made on A and B banks are usually made with longer lead times than calls made on C banks, and the latter are usually the only banks against which same day or next day calls may be issued. Continuing, a reverse call or direct investment is also possible. This would be necessary if the Treasury's closing balance at reserve banks was expected to substantially exceed $5 billion. To avoid the reserve drain that would result from an excessive closing balance, the Treasury may place some or all of the excessive funds into TNL accounts at note option banks. 
whether calling funds from TNLs to make up for an expected shortfall or transferring funds to TNLs through direct investment or canceling previous calls. To prevent an excessive closing balance, the amounts transferred are intended to maintain the Treasury's balance at reserve banks as steady as possible. In pursuit of this goal, the Treasury relies on the cooperation of the Federal Reserve. Note 12. The closing balance in the Treasury's account at the Fed could exceed the target level for two reasons. First, previously placed TNL calls may have been too large. In this case, the amount of spending from accounts at reserve banks is less than the sum of the payments received directly into accounts at the Fed and the amounts called from TNLs. Second, it is possible that the payments made to the government and deposited directly into accounts at reserve banks exceed the amount presented for payment from these accounts. This could happen, for example, during months in which quarterly tax payments sent directly to accounts at the Fed are large enough to more than compensate for government spending. Note 13. The Treasury will not in all instances be successful in its attempt to directly invest its excess funds. Some note option banks will not meet the collateral requirements and will be ineligible recipients of additional TNL funds. Additionally, TNL accounts, like the Treasury's account at the Fed, may swell during unusually heavy quarterly tax payments. Because banks must pay interest on TNL accounts, they limit the size of TNL balances they are willing to accept. When direct investment is not an option, the Treasury can attempt to cancel previously scheduled calls in an attempt to draw down its balance in reserve banks. Continuing, page 12, section 3.3, Coordination with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is extremely interested in helping the Treasury achieve its target closing balance because the Treasury's balance at the Fed is, quote, often the biggest source of uncertainty about reserve levels." Close quote. Molendyke, 1989. Indeed, the Fed's ability to successfully conduct monetary policy, specifically to hit its target funds rate, depends to a large extent on the Treasury's ability to hit its target closing balance. Daily contact between the Treasury and the Fed provide the Treasury with, quote, numerous occasions to assist the reserve authorities to achieve a desired objective, close quote. Auerbach, 1963. Unfortunately, the Treasury is unable, even with the cooperation of the Federal Reserve, to completely offset the effects of its daily spending using TNL calls and direct investment. Indeed, as Table 1 shows, the Treasury's average monthly closing balance can differ substantially from its $5 billion target. Table 1. Column 1 is month. Column 2 is average closing balance in millions. November 1997, 5,015. December 1997, 5,371. January 1998, 6,563. February 1998, 5,118. March 1998, 5,763. And the five-month average is 5,618. End table.
This again is the result of the inherent uncertainty regarding the size and timing of receipts and expenditures. That is, because the payments coming into and going out of the Treasury's account at the Fed can never be precisely known in advance. Transfers to and from TNL accounts will not normally offset exactly the shortfall or excess in these accounts. Thus, as Figure 5 confirms, one expects a non-zero change in the Treasury's daily closing balance. Despite this, changes in the daily closing balance do tend to fluctuate fairly close around zero, deviating most drastically with quarterly tax payments. Figure 5. Title, Change in Daily Closing Balance, November 1997 through March 1998. This is a line graph showing the daily change in closing balance spiking up and down by around $2 billion a day, with more severe spikes at the start of each quarter. End figure. In sum, three important points have been made regarding the Treasury's operations. First, the Treasury recognized the disruptive nature of its cash operations and responded by maintaining accounts at private depositories. Second, the Treasury uses these accounts to diminish the reserve effect of its operations by using TNL calls and direct investments to minimize the net changes in reserve account balances to coordinate the flow of its receipts with its expenditures. Finally, the Treasury and the Fed cooperate to bring about a fairly high degree of harmony in managing the Treasury's balance at reserve banks. Page 14, Section 4 selling bonds to coordinate the Treasury's operations. So far, we have addressed only the Treasury's attempts to balance its taxing and spending flows in order to minimize the reserve effect of its operations. Implicit in our discussion, therefore, was the notion that the government attempts to balance its budget. What if it doesn't? That is, what if the government runs a budget deficit? How does the sale of bonds affect the Treasury's cash flow operations and subsequently the reserve effect? There are three scenarios that must be analyzed in order to determine the reserve effect of selling bonds. The key being by whom and how are they purchased. First, it must be recognized that TNL accounts actually receive not only proceeds from tax payments, but also funds from the sale of government debt. When commercial banks with TNL accounts or customers of these banks purchase government bonds, there may be no immediate loss of reserves to the purchasing bank or the banking system. If, when the Treasury auctions new debt, it specifies that at least some portion of the bonds are eligible for purchase by credit to TNL accounts, special depositories may acquire the bonds by crediting deposits in the name of the U.S. Treasury. These deposits, therefore, will not lose reserves as they purchase newly issued bonds. Note 14. The reader might wonder whether additional reserves are required as a result of the larger T&L balance. The answer is no. Since the establishment of interest-bearing note accounts in November 1978, special depositories have been free of reserve requirements against T&L deposits. Continuing. Similarly, the purchase of newly issued government debt by a customer of a special depository, as long as the Treasury specifies that some or all of the offering is eligible for purchase by TNL credit, 
we'll leave reserves unaffected. For example, when a customer of a special depository purchases government securities, the Treasury redeposits the check into the bank on which the check was drawn. The bank then credits the Treasury's T&L account, offsetting the debit to the buyer's account. Thus, like the purchase of government debt by a special depository, the sale of government debt to a customer of one of these institutions can be effected without any loss of reserves. The second method concerns the private purchase of newly issued government debt that does not involve crediting a T&L or tax and loan account. When the securities are ineligible for purchase by T&L credit and or are not purchased by a so-called note option bank or one of its customers, the purchase of government bonds will immediately drain reserves from both the bank and the banking system. This is because the proceeds from the sale of the securities will not stay in the system, but will be deposited directly into one of the Treasury's accounts at a Federal Reserve Bank. When bonds are sold in this way, member bank reserves decline as the Federal Reserve credits the Treasury's account, increasing the RHB, or right-hand bracket, in Figure 1. Thus, a bank wishing to purchase a U.S. government security when TNL credit is not an option, will do so by drawing on its account at the Federal Reserve. A system-wide loss of reserves will therefore accompany every private purchase of newly issued government debt not eligible for payment through TNL credit. Finally, the sale of Treasury securities to the Federal Reserve must be considered. If the Fed purchases newly issued bonds directly from the Treasury, it will not cause a change in member bank reserves. This, as Figure 1 makes clear, is because both the RHB, U.S. Treasury balance at the Fed, and the LHB, U.S. government securities, increase by the same amount, leaving total reserves unaffected. Furthermore, since the government's balance sheet can be considered on a consolidated basis, given by the sum of the Treasury's and the Federal Reserve's balance sheets, with offsetting assets and liabilities simply canceling one another out. The sale of bonds by the Treasury to the Fed is simply an internal accounting operation, providing the government with a self-constructed, spendable balance. Although self-imposed constraints may prevent the Treasury from creating all of its deposits in this way, there is no real limit on its ability to do so. Note 15. The Federal Reserve was, for a time, prohibited from purchasing bonds directly from the Treasury. This changed during World War II, when the Fed was authorized to purchase up to $5 billion of securities directly from the Treasury. Since then, the limit has been raised several times. Continuing. Now, the Treasury clearly has choices regarding the manner in which the newly issued bonds will be sold. For example, if the government plans to engage in deficit spending, the Treasury can sell bonds, allow them to be purchased by T&L credit, and thereby eliminate any immediate impact on reserves. Note 16. Bolding notes that deficit spending most commonly involves this practice. 1966. Continuing. When the Treasury sells bonds in this way, the bonds act as a sort of ex-ante coordination tool. Ex-ante means before the event. 
Since the Treasury can control the size and timing of the funds transferred from TNL accounts, this type of bond sale helps the Treasury to drain, more or less, the same number of reserves from the system that are being added to the system as a result of its deficit spending. Note 17. Note that the government can deficit spend without taxing or selling bonds first, but that if government spending is greater than taxation, the banking system will be left with excess reserves. The Treasury, therefore, prefers to use bonds to coordinate its deficit spending, selling them to special depositories and allowing TNL credit, before spending from its accounts at reserve banks. The bonds, then, allow the government to defend ex ante the Fed funds rate. Continuing, if, however, there is a problem with the coordination, for example, if the Treasury and Fed underestimate the amount of checks that are drawn on the Treasury's account at the Fed, bonds could be sold in order to drain excess reserves. In other words, insufficient TNL calls, which result in a system-wide increase in reserves and threaten to send the overnight lending rate to a 0% bid, could prompt the sale of bonds as an ex post coordination tool. In order to immediately drain the excess reserves, banks could not be allowed to purchase the bonds by crediting a TNL account, but this is something the Treasury can specify or something the Fed can do. Page 17, Section 5, The Nuances of Reserve Accounting. The purpose of this section is twofold. First, the commonly held belief that taxes and bonds are used to finance government spending will be examined. First, the question will be addressed intuitively, drawing on the reserve effects analyzed in sections 2 to 4. Second, for those who remain unconvinced by the intuitive analysis, the question as to whether the proceeds from taxes and bond sales are even capable of financing government spending will be considered. The argument requires an application of basic accounting principles to an analysis of reserve accounting in order to determine whether revenues from taxation and the sale of bonds are even capable of financing government spending. Both questions seem absurd. There is surely no doubt that the proceeds from taxation and bond sales are deposited into accounts held by the U.S. Treasury, either with commercial banks or at the Federal Reserve and that the government spends by writing checks on treasury accounts at reserve banks. Moreover, since funds are transferred from TNL accounts to the treasury's account at the Fed in order to cover anticipated shortfalls in these accounts, it certainly looks as though the government uses these proceeds to finance its spending. This apparent interdependence is undoubtedly the basis for the treatment of taxation and bond sales as financing operations. But is the coordination of taxation and bond sales with deficit spending due to necessity, or does it mask a more pragmatic operation? Let us consider the argument that the coordination owes itself to necessity. That is, that the government needs to tax or borrow from the private sector in order to finance its spending. The question can be approached pragmatically using the following important conclusions drawn in sections 2 to 4. First, the payment of taxes in the purchase of bonds by the private sector drains reserves from the banking system as the proceeds are placed into the Treasury's account at the Federal Reserve. Second, 
government spending causes a system-wide increase in aggregate bank reserves. Third, changes in the total level of bank reserves cause changes in the federal funds and other short-term interest rates. Fourth, the Treasury manages its closing balance in reserve accounts by coordinating its spending, taxing, and bond sales. Fifth, barring self-imposed constraints, the Treasury could manufacture all of its spending balances by selling bonds directly to the Federal Reserve. But why should the government need to take from the private sector the money, currency, and or bank reserves that it alone is capable of creating? It seems reasonable to suggest that it is not money, but bridges, armies, satellites, etc., that the government wants and that it acquires them by encouraging the population to provide them in exchange for government money. That is, it cannot be the government, but the public and citizens who need the money in order to settle their tax liabilities to the state. Indeed, the entire process of taxing and spending must, as a matter of logic, have begun with the government first creating and spending new government money. How, after all, could a population settle its tax liabilities using the government's money, HPM or high-powered money, before the government had made its money available? In other words, the government's purchase of goods and services using newly created money must first have supplied the citizens with the means with which to pay taxes. Thus, taxes can be conceived as the means by which the government directs real resources from private to public domain. If this theory is accepted, taxes are used to create demand for the government's money, not to finance the government's spending. Similarly, bonds need not be issued in order to allow the government to spend in excess of current taxation. This again is because the government can always create its own spendable balance internally on its consolidated balance sheet by offsetting a treasury liability against a Federal Reserve asset, such as, but not necessarily, a treasury bond. In the absence of bond sales, deficit spending would result in a net increase in aggregate bank reserves. Bonds, then, are used to coordinate deficit spending, draining what would otherwise become excess reserves. They provide the private sector with an interest-earning alternative to non-interest-bearing government currency and allow the government to spend in excess of taxation while maintaining positive overnight lending rates. Thus, an intuitive analysis of Treasury operations suggests a practical motivation for the coordination of taxation and bond sales with government spending. Specifically, because of the reserve effects of taxing, spending, and selling bonds, the government chooses to coordinate these operations in order to mitigate the impact on banks' reserve positions and, hence, on short-term interest rates. This interdependence, then, is not de facto evidence of a financing role for taxes and bonds, de facto meaning in reality. On the contrary, taxes can be viewed as a means of creating a demand for the government's money, HPM. Bonds, which are used to prevent deficit spending from flooding the system with excess reserves, allow the maintenance of positive overnight lending rates. 
neither taxes nor bond sales, therefore, need be viewed as a financing operation. Many readers will undoubtedly remain unconvinced, based on the intuitive analysis just presented, that the treatment of taxation and bond sales as financing operations should be discontinued. Fortunately, there is another, more powerful method by which to argue that taxation and bond sales should not be considered financing operations. The argument is a technical one and requires an understanding that Federal Reserve notes and reserves are booked as liabilities on the Fed's balance sheets and that these liabilities are extinguished or discharged when they are offered in payment to the state. It must also be recognized that when currency or reserves return to the state, the liabilities of the state are reduced and high-powered money is destroyed. The destruction of these promises is no different from the private destruction of a promise once it has been fulfilled. In other words, when an individual takes out a loan, she issues a promise to a bank. Once she makes good on that promise, such as repays the loan, she may destroy that loan debt liability by eliminating it from her balance sheet. Likewise, the state, once it fulfills its promise to accept its own money, HPM, at state pay offices, can eliminate an equivalent number of these liabilities from its balance sheet. Thus, while bank money, M1, is destroyed when demand deposits are used to pay taxes, the government's money, HPM, is destroyed as the funds are placed into the Treasury's account at the Fed. Viewed in this way, it can be convincingly argued that the money collected from taxation and bond sales cannot possibly finance the government's spending. This is because in order to, quote, get its hands on the proceeds from taxation and bond sales, the government must destroy the money it has collected. Clearly, Government spending cannot be financed by money that is destroyed when received in payment to the state. How, if not by using the money received in payment of taxes and bond sales, does government finance its spending? Notice that the government writes checks on an account that does not comprise part of the money supply or HPM, but that as it does, the funds become part of the money supply M1 if deposited into checking accounts, M2 if savings accounts, etc., and part of HPM. It is therefore apparent that while the payment of taxes destroys an equivalent amount of money, M1 immediately and HPM as the proceeds go into the Treasury's account at the Fed, spending from this account creates an equivalent amount of new money, both bank money and HPM. Modern governments, then, finance all of their spending through the direct creation of new, high-powered money. Page 22, Summary and Conclusions If the government, Fed and Treasury, had no regard for the reserve effect of its operations, it would have little use for T&L accounts. It could simply create its own spendable deposit on its consolidated balance sheet and then spend adding reserves and creating money without regard for the size or timing of its tax receipts. But this behavior would frequently leave a banking system which was previously satisfied with its reserve position 
with substantially more excess reserves than it wished to maintain. A system flush with excess reserves would find few bidders for these funds, and the overnight lending rate would fall toward zero. Taxes, as they drifted in, would drain a portion of the excess reserves. Still, the funds rate could remain at a 0% bid for a prolonged period of time. In order to move to a positive funds rate, either the Federal Reserve or the Treasury would be forced to sell bonds to drain excess reserves. Note 18. Note that bonds would have to be sold even if the government ran an annually balanced budget. This is because it is impossible to eliminate the reserve effects of the Treasury's daily operations, thus swings in the Treasury's daily closing balance, which threaten to move the funds rate away from its target, would induce the sale of bonds despite an annually balanced budget. Continuing, banks, not wishing to hold an excessive amount of non-interest-bearing government money, would be all too happy to exchange non-interest earning reserves for interest-bearing treasury bonds. The bonds would have to be sold until enough excess reserves had been drained to yield a positive target funds rate. Although this process of adding and later draining reserves could work, it would involve substantial variation in the level of reserves and subsequently significant turmoil in the market for federal funds. Knowing that these are the undesirable effects of disregarding the reserve effects of its operations, the Treasury chooses to coordinate its operations, transferring funds from the TNL accounts, draining reserves, as it spends from its account at the Fed. Taxes are not necessary for, or even capable of, financing government spending when they are paid using high-powered money, such as by cash or check in a fiat money system. In order for the government to get its hands on the proceeds from taxation, it must place these funds into the Treasury's account at the Fed. As it does, the banking system loses an equivalent amount of desired and or required reserves, either immediately or as the Treasury transfers the proceeds from TNL accounts into its accounts at reserve banks. And an equivalent amount of HPM is destroyed. Similarly, reserves are drained and HPM is destroyed when the Treasury issues bonds immediately if TNL credit is not allowed or with a lag as the proceeds are transferred from TNL accounts. In contrast, government spending from the Treasury's account at the Fed injects reserves and creates an equivalent amount of new money, M1, M2, etc., and HPM. It is impossible to perfectly balance in timing and amount the government's receipts with its expenditures. The best the Treasury and the Fed can do is to compare estimates of anticipated changes in the Treasury's account at the Fed and to transfer approximately the correct amount to and from TNL accounts. Errors due to excessive or insufficient TNL calls are the norm. Although same-day calls and direct investments are designed to permit the authorities to react to these errors, they are not always an option. When the Treasury is unable to correct these errors on its own, the Federal Reserve may have to offset changes in the Treasury's closing balance. This will be necessary whenever the errors are large enough to move the funds rate away from its target rate.
In fact, as argued previously, the Treasury's balance at the Fed is, quote, often the biggest source of uncertainty, close quote, faced by monetary policymakers. Mullendike, 1989. Its role as an offsetting agency is essentially forced upon it by its commitment to a target funds rate. Indeed, Poole, in 1975, goes further, stating that the Fed will usually abandon any other objective target in order to maintain the funds rate within its tolerance range. The adding or draining of reserves, then, is largely non-discretionary, as monetary policy is concerned primarily with maintaining the overnight lending rate. Fiscal policy, in contrast, has to do with determining the supply of high-powered money. Moreover, while both taxation and bond sales drain reserves from the banking system, neither provide the government with money with which to finance its spending. Indeed, both taxation and bond sales lead ultimately to the destruction of HPM. An analysis of reserve accounting reveals that all government spending is financed by the direct creation of HPM. Bond sales and taxation are merely alternative means by which to drain reserves or destroy HPM. The choice, then, is between alternative methods for draining reserves in order to prevent the overnight lending rate from falling to zero. In light of these findings, it is perhaps time to reconsider our definitions of monetary and fiscal policy as well as our treatment of taxation and bond sales as financing operations.